John is away. Uh, he is enjoying a little bit of a vacation with his family. Uh, and so I get to start um, our new uh, series for Easter uh, called The Shadows. Um, and we're going to be looking uh, at this idea of shadows over the next two weeks and then on Good Friday and then ending uh, on Easter morning. Uh, and so why the shadows? Um, well, as early as, as I'm looking back, as early as the ninth century, the church was performing what is called a tenebrae service. Um, and it concluded Lent. And a tenebrae service in English, a tenebrae is Latin for shadow. So in English, it would literally mean a service of shadows. And during this service, um, they would have candles lit and start looking uh, through the Easter story leading up to crucifixion. And as they would go, they would start to extinguish uh, the candles and the shadows would grow, the darkness would grow until the service was almost in complete darkness. Um, and so out of this idea, uh, we thought, why not look at some of uh, the shadows of, of the characters in the Easter story, uh, some of their humanity? Um, and, and so that's what we're going to do. Now, a shadow, if you want uh, a scientific definition for it, you should look it up. Uh, my definition for it um, is a shadow is what happens when a light source, right, is blocked by an object. And depending on how close the object is to the light source or to the ground depends on how dark and big the shadow is, right? Depending if the object is opaque or translucent, right? It will determine how much light can get through, which determines the shadow. Um, and if you kind of start to go down the spiritual idea of this, right, um, it says that Jesus is the light. Like he claims to be the light of life. And in that, uh, he claims that he is going to bring light to dark places. It's actually what Marisol, a couple weeks ago, if you remember the video of the woman, right? Well, how does she conclude? We need to bring light to dark places places. And that was Jesus's goal, to bring light to dark places. And a chief avenue he does that is through you and I, which is kind of a crazy concept, that he lets us take his light and shine it for people to see. Right? This is why, right on the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He says, you are the light of the world, right? You are this lamp that should be on a lampstand. It shouldn't be hidden. You are supposed to be this light to show people Jesus, to show people God. But the problem comes in in that while we're supposed to be a reflection, while we're supposed to be shining this light, we often don't fully maybe buy into this idea of transformation, of change, of letting God renew us. And so we start to have these dark, shadowy places in our life. And these dark places do cast a shadow on the light that is supposed to illuminate, right? If I was to ask any of you what's, what's a dark spot in your life, what's a shadow in your life, I'm sure you could think of a couple things. When I was thinking about this idea of shadows, um, I was thinking as a kid, uh, we spent a lot of time with, with family growing up, and uh, we always used to go over to my grandparents' house, you know, every Sunday for that traditional Sunday dinner. Um, and at, well, at my Bush's house, that's Polish for grandmother, if you didn't know, for all you non-Poles, 
For anybody with last name Ski, maybe you know what I'm talking about. But my Bush's house, we would go every Sunday. And when you walk in, she had this tight little narrow entryway. And on the right was a a closet for coats, right? You know what I'm talking about? This small little entryway, a closet for coats, and it was always very dark. And you'd open the closet up, and there would be just deep shadows and darkness. And as a kid, I couldn't reach the light up top on the little pull string to light up the closet. And they would say, Steve, hang your jacket up. And I would look in there, and I don't know. And that compounded when my aunt started to tell me there was a tarantula inside that closet. This is what she did to a poor child. There's a tarantula in the closet. So I kept my coat on most of childhood. Um, But one day, see, these are things that scar children, just as uh, you're thinking this is funny. She goes, Steve, come here. I want to show you something. And so I come over, and she's by the closet, and she opens the closet, and I kind of take a step back, and she grabs my hand and thrusts it into the dark. And I touched the biggest, furriest tarantula my little mind could conceive. I start screaming, trying to pull my arm back. Meanwhile, everyone's laughing. She turns on the light, and there's a big fur coat sitting in the closet. Well, the damage has been done. Um, When Melissa says, why don't you hang your coat up? Uh, Instead of leaving it over the chair, I tell her I have deep emotional childhood scars with closets. Uh, So in case you didn't know, that's why there's clothes laying all over the house. Um, But shadows can be a scary place for us, especially uh, growing up as children. Um, And as adults, um, the shadows are sometimes places that uh, we overlook in our own lives, places uh, that need illumination, that need light brought to it. Uh, but instead, we're willing to uh, kind of uh, keep the shadow over there and just let it be. So this week, we're going to look at someone from the Easter story that had some dark spots, some shadows. Probably the most famous uh, dark spot or shadow, right, is Judas. Um, Judas, we know the story, is the one that betrayed Jesus, But if you look into his story, there's some interesting uh, themes that go through it. Uh, And so we're going to look at that this morning and hopefully uh, not just get some knowledge about who Judas is and not just get some knowledge that, hey, I know the Bible better, uh, but getting some actual spiritual guidance, some discernment from his story, uh, some application that you can put in your own life and go, hey, like Judas... I got some issues, and they need changed. They need transformation. They need the light of Christ. So what do we know about Judas? That's the question. Well, he's obviously one of the 12 disciples. He is actually, if you, every place I found in the Gospels, when they start to refer to the disciples and they give you a list of disciples, do you know who's the last one on the list always? It's always Judas, He's the last one on the list. Um, But, so we we have this idea that Judas is a disciple. He's always the last on the list. Um, He's often referred to as Judas Iscariot, almost always. Uh, Judas is a really common name uh, at the time. It's, you know, not like today, like, I don't know any Judases. Uh, 
right? We, we, don't, we don't name our kids that anymore. Well, hopefully. No Judases? No? Okay. Because it's, it's, you know, now has all of this baggage to the name. But back then it was common. And so Judas was called Judas Iscariot to make the distinction of who he was. In fact, other times in the Bible, they'll say, oh, his name was Judas, not Iscariot. His name was Judas Iscariot. And so we start to look, what does Iscariot mean? This is some fascinating stuff I found. There's all sorts of argument on what it could mean, but here's a couple of them. One, one writer said it's a corruption off of the Latin word meaning murderer or assassin. Let that sink in for a second. His last name was a derivative from the Latin for murderer and assassin. Another one writes that it could, you could explain it that it means one who delivers. Think of the implications once again. There is also a small Jewish sect uh, that were these radical almost terrorists of their time against the Romans. Uh, and their name was very close to Iscariot. And so we find out that actually Judas's father, Simon, was called this as well, Simon Iscariot. And so some would say that he was brought up in that sect, that group, uh, that would go uh, and basically terrorize the Romans, trying to get rid of them. And then lastly, and, and maybe the most bland of them uh, is, is one who comes from Keroeth. This is a city in Judea, uh, and nothing big at first when you hear that, except that it's a city in, in Judea. Guess where the other 11 disciples are from? Galilee, from the north. They're all from Galilee. They're all from the north. Judas if he is from this city, man of Keroeth, is the only one from the south. He's different than all the rest. It's kind of like when I first came to Jersey and I thought all of Jersey was alike, and I was quickly schooled that North Jersey and South Jersey are distinctly different, right? If you're from North Jersey, you don't claim to be from down there, right? If you're from South Jersey, you don't claim to be from up here. Just a little biblical knowledge for you. Uh, you know, so next time, maybe, I always love when Jeopardy shows the Bible questions because it's the only ones I can get right. So next time, Jeopardy's on and the, and the question or the answer comes, the only disciple not from Galilee, you can scream out, Judas Iscariot, I know that one. You're wrong because you didn't form it as a question. It's who is Judas Iscariot, that's the answer. So Judas Iscariot, all of that to say, there's a lot of conjecture. We don't get a whole lot about him uh, other than he is a disciple. And so the first time we really find out anything about him is the beginning of really the Easter story. We have Jesus and his disciples staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Remember, very close friends, Lazarus, the guy he brought back to life. And they're staying with him before, with them before Palm Sunday. And we get this situation that occurs where Mary comes and takes this oil, this expensive perfume, and anoints Jesus' feet and then dries it with her hair. This crazy scene that takes place. This oil, this perfume is probably 
something that has been passed down. Uh, it's said to maybe be worth up to a year's wages. It's something that is precious and rare. And she dumps it at the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with it. And as everybody kind of is watching and, and awestruck by this, we finally get Simon, I mean, uh, Judas speaking. Judas finally is, is in the gospel as saying something. And Maggie, if you can put this up. This is what he says. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Our first glimpse into Judas's character, and this is what we get. We get this man who is judging this woman for anointing Jesus and looking at it, and, and it says, we could have sold that and given all that money to the poor. And that sounds great. Well, maybe he does have a point. Maybe it should have been used differently. But the reason he's saying it is because that he's the one that keeps the money purse. He's the one that keeps the disciples and Jesus' money. Now, the fact is they probably didn't have much. Actually, very little. We often find, remember, the disciples are so hungry, they're just kind of picking grain out of the field to eat. These men are not men that have money laying around. And the little money they do have, it says, is that Judas is helping himself to it. We start to get the shadow, the darkness. Something of greed in, in Judas's life. And I don't have an explanation on why he does this. Uh, on if he felt he wasn't getting his fair share, he was worried about the future. What if this whole Jesus thing doesn't pan out? Right? I'm going to take a little on the side to make sure I'm set. You know, I need a 401k, my retirement. He doesn't provide it, so I'll take it. We don't know what the reason is, but Judas starts to pocket some of this money. And when he looks at the gift that Mary gave to Jesus, he thinks about himself. Okay, that's our first tidbit into Judas's character. We come across not too, too farther in the story probably maybe a week, a couple days later, uh, we get that Jesus comes into Jerusalem, right, on Palm Sunday. And while he's there, we get the next glimpse into who Judas is. Uh, so can you put up Luke 22? So it says that the disciples are getting ready for the Passover, which is going to take place. Um, and, and they're in Jerusalem. And it says, this is what Judas does. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them and when no crowd was present. We get Judas... Nothing through chapter after chapter in the gospel other than he's a disciple. And then we get he's stealing money. 
that he cares more about himself than the poor, which is kind of fascinating as he's followed Jesus around. Like, what was Jesus' life like? I mean, it was constantly giving to the poor. It was constantly talking about the needy, the orphan, the widow. And somehow Judas has missed this, right? And he starts to take money. And then we get now, he goes, it says he went. It's not that they came after him. He went to them and struck a deal with them. And he said, hey, I can give you access to Jesus. You want him? I can make it happen. I can help you find him when none of the crowds are around. See, the chief priest and the elders are terrified of Jesus. He has the support of the people. And if you were to take Jesus in front of the people, you would start a riot. And so you couldn't do that. And that means you need some inside information on where Jesus is, when he's going to be there, and when I can get him. And so Judas says, I'll provide you that information. And they gladly agree to pay him. Here's some more fun facts about that. Um, What's the price that he ends up, up taking? Remember? 30 pieces of silver, right? Do you know that that is what you would pay if you accidentally killed someone's servant? So if you had a, if your, it says, if your oxen tramples your neighbor's servant, here's what you owe them, 30 pieces of silver. This is the price for a servant. I find that fascinating. What does Jesus say of himself? I did not come, right, to be served, but to serve. Judas gets 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. This isn't probably a life-changing amount of money, right? It's a decent amount. But he goes to him and says, I'll betray him. And he takes the money and he starts to watch for an opportunity to do this. Here's where we skip forward a little bit. Um, Most of us know what happens next uh, with Judas. Um, But before I say that, let let me make this statement. For whatever reason, Judas has went from you can start to see some greed, right, in, in the story of taking money out of the purse. And he's taken that greed, maybe the darkness of that greed, and the shadow now that it's starting the cast because of it, right? Sin always leads to more sin. And so the shadow it starts to cast is this one of betrayal on Jesus. And so once again, for whatever reason, all of this stuff he's hearing about who Jesus is, is going in one ear and out the other. Always hearing, but never, right? Understanding, always seeing, but never perceiving. Judas is going to betray Jesus. And so the story continues um, in that, right, at the Last Supper, you guys know this, we've, we've, we've talked about it before, I'm sure you've read this before, you've heard sermons on this before. You know, as Jesus is breaking the bread and taking the cup, right, And Judas is there, and he says to Judas, hey, I know what you're going to do, right? I know you're going to betray me. Go do what you need to do. 
It talks about Judas then leaving. And the next time we find him, right, is after the dinner, Jesus has went away into the garden of Gethsemane with some of the other disciples. And Judas comes, it says, with a mob of men to capture Jesus. And they come up to Jesus. And what does Judas do? Right, he gives him the kiss, the sign that this is the man you should take. And so with no other people around, no riot to be started in the middle of the night, the mob that he's brought, the soldiers that he's brought, takes Jesus to the high priest. Takes Jesus uh, to be put on trial. Well, not really a trial, right? They knew what they were gonna do with him. They were gonna find him guilty. And they were gonna find a way to kill him. And Judas had given him the opportunity. And so right as the night is going on, they take Jesus to court. They say that you have blasphemed God. And then in the morning, they send him to Pilate, really for the final conviction. How are we gonna kill this guy? And this is when the next part of Judas's story pops up. And as I'm studying it this week, I found it kind of, you know, often when I'm, uh, I'm, tr- I'm reading scripture and I'm asking God, hey, can you give me something out of this? And he so often answers. And this is what I got from this as, as that comes up. Would you put that, Maggie, that next section? So just before this, it's the early morning, uh, and the chief priests, the elders, uh, they have sent Jesus to be executed, and they sent him over to Pilate. And this is what it says about Judas. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, meaning he's going to die, right? He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And they replied, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. At first glance, you go, Judas had a change of heart, right? He had remorse for what he did. And that's nice to think that, um, but probably not what was happening. For you parents, especially of teenagers, have you ever caught your kid doing something they shouldn't be doing or caught them after the fact and you start to question them and they break and they start, see some of you guys are looking at your kids right now, and they break and they start sobbing, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, what's gonna happen, right? What trouble am I gonna get into? And you get the sense that they're really not sorry. They're sorry because they got caught. And they're fearful of the consequences that are going to come. If you've ever felt that, it's probably because you've done that. I've done that. I've got caught for something I shouldn't be doing. Some sin that I'm caught into. And it's not that I'm... Sorry that I sinned. It's, I'm sorry that I got caught and I'm now fearful of the consequences. In 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. 
Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, the key word in there is the repentance, is to repent. I tell this to your students all the time, that repent literally means I am going in one direction and I repent and I turn and I go in the opposite direction. That's literally what repent means. It means to turn. And so if you're going in the wrong direction and you go, I'm really sorry I'm going this way and you keep going, you're not repenting, okay? This isn't repentance. This is just I'm sorry that something bad's probably gonna happen. Repentance is literally meaning to turn and go in the opposite direction. When you turn and go in the opposite direction, you give a chance, as that verse said, for salvation, for no regret. I liked how one writer put it. He said this, the former, meaning godly sorrow, brings repentance and the experience of divine grace. The latter brings death because instead of being God-centered sorrow over the wickedness of sin, it is self-centered sorrow over the painful consequences of that sin. That's me all the time, to be completely honest. I'm sorry that the sin has caused me pain. I'm not necessarily sorry for the sin. And this is most likely what is being described when Judas says he has remorse. It's not he was repentive. He wanted to repent. It was that he was sorry that something bad is now going to happen to him. And he's realizing that this is going maybe farther than he thought it would. And now innocent blood is going to be on my hands. And I don't want that. I don't want innocent blood on my hands. But Judas's biggest fault in this, and this is what I found, is his greed that leads to the betrayal. Now he's in this point of, you could say, despair. He never changes direction. He never changes direction. He keeps going back to that which is bringing about the pain. He keeps going back. It's like putting your hand in a fire and burning it and pulling it out and, and screaming that your hand is burned and then go, I need to make this better and you put your hand back in the fire. He keeps going to that which is causing him pain. Proverbs says it the best. You know this one? As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats their folly. My dog is a testament to that first part. If you don't believe me, we're going on a couple of vacations this summer. You're welcome to watch her. But here's the tough part. Why my dog is, makes the first part true, you and I make the second part true. We so often return to our folly. We return to that which is bringing us pain and expect a different outcome. We're not much different than Judas. He went the same direction that he had always gone in. Nothing changed. In fact, it got worse. 
He goes back to the priest. He wants to be absolved for what I did wrong. Take the money back. I don't want to be guilty. I don't want this on my hands. It's not that I'm sorry I did this. Is I don't want the punishment. And they don't care. Did you catch the response? Did you catch the response? We don't care. What is it to us? That's your deal. You deal with it. Isn't that true of sin? Sin always promises way more than it can deliver. And we go back there looking for something else, something new, something to make my life better, happy, and it can never deliver. He goes back to the problem. He goes back to the chief priests, the elders, and he thinks it's going to fix it. He never changes directions. And so he's left in this state of despair. The dictionary defines despair to no longer have any hope or belief that a situation will improve or change. To no longer have any hope or belief that a situation will improve or change. Any of you have areas of life like that? I don't see hope. I don't see the possibility for it. This can't change. And then the question would be, are you returning to the people, the places, the things that have got you to that point? Like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly. Judas returns to the place where he has been caused now this pain, this issue, this problem. It's what I do. I go back to it thinking it's going to fix itself somehow, but it doesn't. And then I wallow in the, the shame of punishment, uh, the sin. I start to go, there's no hope for change. I hit despair, and when you hit despair, that's a slippery road. Let me read you two Old Testament passages that talk about kind of this idea of despair, that there's no hope. In Isaiah, it says, when he's talking about the people constantly steeped in their sin and that they're not turning for it, he says, they look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but they walk in deep shadows. I want the light, but I won't change direction. And if you're unwilling to change direction, you will continue to walk in the shadow, and you will continue to be in despair because you are without hope. Let me read you one more. I think we have this one. First Chronicles 29, 15. Um, David is praising God in front of the assembly. Uh, and he starts to say what life without God would be like. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all of our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. 
Now, shadow there just is more of an idea of fleeting, of going away. But the point is, without Christ, there isn't hope for change. Our human nature is to go back and back and back for more of the same. That's my nature. That I will continue to go with what is actually killing me. And guess what? It will eventually kill you. The end of the story of Judas. What's the, what's the very end? Maggie, do you want to put that up? This is after he was talking to them, and they said, we don't care. It says, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away and hanged himself. Not to make light of that, but anyone that has dealed with suicide, but that is the outcome of no hope. When it, something seems hopeless, that's the outcome. It's death, right? Worldly sorrow leads to life? No, it leads to death. It ultimately always will lead to death. Where are you going back to? What's the thing you keep returning to that's killing you? That can change. I'm gonna call uh, the band up um, and the ushers up, the elders, they're gonna serve communion. This is what is great about the Easter story. This is what is great about a sermon that feels like I'm telling you there's no hope, there's no hope. We are people that return to our folly, right? That through Jesus, there is hope. That God has changed things. The psalmist writes it this way. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Our hope, our true hope is in Christ, that he can transform and change you, that you don't have to be one that keeps going back, but you, he can help you turn if you let him. If you repent, you say, and I, I want to turn from this. I want to change. This is bringing me death. This is what he does. This is the story of Easter, this is our great hope, right? The hope of salvation. This is what we're actually gonna take communion here in a second. This is what communion offers. A chance to repent, to turn. For hope to enter a hopeless situation. For you not to stay in despair. For you not to end like Judas. Who continued to wallow and walk around and head in the direction, right, of this greed, betrayal, despair, death. You can turn. Christ can do that in you. He's done that in my life. He's done that in a lot of your lives. He will continue to do that as you let him. So the band's gonna play. Uh, the elders are gonna pass out both uh, the bread and the wine. Uh, and then if you just hold that, and we'll take communion all together.